So welcome to Theology on Tap. Uh, this is our first in this format of Theology on Tap. Uh, we're actually doing a little bit more Theology on Tap while we're in the midst of the pandemic, uh, but this is our first interfaith conversation. Uh, and if you're watching live, seeing a couple of people signing on, um, we'd love to have you uh, join us in the conversation. Feel free to interrupt us at any time, post a comment, post a question. We'd love to have you. I am joined today by Maharat Rory Pickernice, who has become a close friend and colleague in the work in St. Louis, and been hearing for a while now that folks would like to hear from people and leaders of other faiths. And so it made sense for one of my best buddies in interfaith work in St. Louis to join for the first time. Uh, Rory, you've talked at Theology on Tap before around questions of immigration. Yeah. But we would start with... Um, sort of an almost Krista Tippett question, which is, uh, you know, Krista Tippett always talks about um, what was the faith uh, of your childhood. But I have been really interested in the question lately about where people locate themselves within religion. I, I heard when I was in India a couple of years ago, somebody say there's not Hinduism, but Hinduisms. And I find that true of a lot of the major religions is there's, there's like lots of different iterations. So where do you locate yourself inside the wider Jewish community? Um, I love that question. And first of all, let me say hi also. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm honored to, you know, be sort of starting this off with you um, and really just always love the chance to talk um, to you and to study together and um, excited to see where the conversation goes. So the funny thing in some ways I think about Judaism, first of all, we would also definitely agree that there's Judaisms, but because we are... Um, maybe 2% of the population within America, you know, we're like half of 1% of the population globally, um, we often get grouped together. And so all the more so not realizing how much diversity there is within the community. So we tend to divide ourselves within the Jewish community denominationally, um, which really has to do, uh, people think it has to do with practice, but really is more theological, I think, of kind of relationship to God and sacred text. How bound are we by the law and by the word of God? Um, and so I find myself in the Orthodox community, the Orthodox branch of Judaism, um, which believes in the um, that, that the word of God is, is um, divinely given, um, that the Torah that we have is divinely given and therefore is, is binding, that we're bound by the law um, as interpreted through the rabbis. Um, through the generations. Um, and and on, I'm, I'm on, so I'm on kind of the most conservative branch of Judaism, but on the most liberal end of that branch. So, um, you know, very much believing that we are given this wisdom by God, but that it's wisdom that's true for all time. And so it's also true today in a world that has science and um, medical advancement and um, LGBTQ individuals and women's leadership and, you know, that we have to grapple with all of the ways in which new understandings of the world still remain true, even as we believe that God's word is true. Mm. And that's, I, I mean, even your title uh, has something to do with that, right? Like, can you <clears throat> your title? Yeah, so I use the title of Maharat. I am one of three people in the world who apparently uses that title. Um, I was part of a program, a number, uh, it's still going, but uh, about um, 
I don't even know the math. I was going to say 10 years, but it's not quite that long. Um, I was ordained. Um, so the Orthodox community is the only community not ordaining women. Um, up until more recently, there was a move to start ordaining women. And when it first started, um, the person who started it said, you know, I'm, I'm going to ordain women, but we won't call them rabbi because women in the Orthodox community are not rabbis. So we'll make up a whole other word. And if it's a whole other word, it can't be controversial because you can't say you can't do it because no one's ever done it. So he used the title of Maharat, which is an acronym in Hebrew for Manhiga Hilchatit Ruchanit Toratit, which means um, a leader or a guide of halakha, of Jewish law, of uh, spirituality and of Torah, of text. Um, and uh, and he started ordaining women with that title. And even that shows in the first cohort, um, we all started using the title of Maharat, the first two cohorts. And then after that, um, some of the women started to call themselves Rabbah, a more feminine version of Rabbi, or Rabbanit, also um, seen as a more feminine version of Rabbi. Some also took the title of Rabbi. Um, but at this point, I've, I've been in St. Louis for almost eight years as Maharat, so I've, I've stuck with it. That's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the questions that we're asking uh, folks to talk with at, after this with their friends, with their whoever they bring together to talk about the conversation is, you know, where do you locate yourself within your religious tradition? And do you do that with intention? And it seems to me like your chosen place within your community has to take a lot of intention, like it takes a lot of energy to occupy that particular space. Is that fair? Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know if you mean like mine particularly or in the Jewish community as a whole. Um, I mean, so for me, like I always grew up in the Orthodox community, but in ways that I actually didn't really think about it and wasn't really intentional. Um, I'm, I'm the only girl in a family of three brothers, uh, you know, four kids. And so um, I, what I actually find a little bit embarrassing was like, I, this wasn't like a feminist revolution for me. I was really happy with women having different roles in the Orthodox community. We pray in separate spaces. Um, I did not get the same education that my brothers did. And, and I actually thought that was really fine. Like I thought, you know, sort of separate but equal to, to like use that, you know, loaded phrase, um, you know, could work. And, but of course, separate but equal is never equal as, as we know in every sense of it. And so, um, you know, I, I just like, I wanted to participate more. And it's, it's sort of funny to me that it was just wanting to study more meant I had to go into more liberal spaces. Mm. And so that's been an interesting journey for me, because I, I in some ways, I'm very, um, I feel very conservative in certain ways, but you know, very progressive in other ways. And for me, it all makes a lot of sense. It's where everybody else is that kind of moves. I like that. I like that. I have to, I mean, like owning some of my own biases and I'm, I, I told you just a, a couple of minutes ago, but I remember when I first in like saw you from afar, we didn't actually meet the first time I saw you, but um, uh, Rabbi Haim Shatner, who was the uh, rabbi at Base Abe, where you came to St. Louis to work for Base Abe, right? Yeah, I, I worked at the pulpit first. Yeah, so he was uh, a good colleague of Mike Kinman, who was one of the only priests I knew in San Diego when I first moved here. And Mike said, oh, you're going to U-City. You have to meet Chaim. And of course, Chaim was on his way out of town. But I met Chaim before I, I managed to have coffee with him right before he, he headed out of town to go take up a new um, pulpit. And I saw you from afar and he was explaining sort of who you were and that 
Um, Base Abe had been one of the Orthodox synagogues that was working for women's ordination and it was such a big deal to have you here. And I saw you and you had a headscarf on and you were sort of, so you were like this intimidating like figure who was this like, you know, like unconventional, but yet also um, involved in a version of frankly Judaism that I hadn't had a lot of intersection with. I grew up with uh, a good friend who was a conservative Jew, but in Judaism, that's like a step more liberal than Orthodox, right? Um, they, they say that conservative Judaism, I've heard somebody say it's, it's like the Episcopal Church of Judaism in some ways, because traditional language for liturgy, but modern theology. Right. Um, yeah, the, the motto is tradition and change. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's an interesting, I think it's difficult. I think it's so often because of the way our country is patterned around like what conservative means and what liberal means, religious folks, you know, Episcopalianism is really conservative in some religious ways. Like we're the outfits we wear, the titles we have, some of our stuff is actually very, very conservative um, in terms of liturgy, but our politics, when it comes to a bunch of things that we line up with on national issues tends to look progressive. Um, so it's just, it was interesting for me. I have these internal like, oh, that's somebody who's a little bit different, a little bit mysterious. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, besides your ordination, besides your role within the Orthodox community, what does that mean in terms of your religious practice? Uh, like, does it affect what you wear, um, where you, you know, where you live? Those kind of questions. Like, how how does your place in Judaism affect those things? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, so yes, I mean, all of those things. Um, we we interpret the text um, in a in a very strict way, and so that translates to um, dietary laws. We keep a strictly kosher home that includes um, not only no pork products or shellfish, but we keep uh, separate dishes for meat and for dairy. I actually, have. I don't know, maybe six sets of dishes when you factor in Passover dishes and uh, and you know nice dishes and weekday dishes and um, so uh, things like that. Um, the food that we will get is um, is certified as kosher or prepared in a kosher kitchen. Um, um, and in terms of so I do I cover my hair. I've been covering my hair since um, I was married. Um, that was for my community. That's when um, women will choose to cover their hair um, and uh, will usually wear longer sleeves and higher necklines. And um, it's very convenient in the winter, but um, no, more noticeable in the summer. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it really does translate into into every aspect of my life. And, and I want to say to that, I think like to go back also to what you were saying, I think it's so fascinating because we've, we've almost relegated these communities into these spaces. But for me, and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I, I would imagine you might agree, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm conservative religiously, but progressive politically, like these progressive politics, politics stem from a very religious reading of the biblical text that like I think absolutely commands us religiously to be, you know, fighting to defend the poor or the most vulnerable or advocating for um, social policies that include welfare systems and um, rights for immigrants, you know, all of those things that I think are incredibly clear in the text. So, um, so, so I appreciate, you know, kind of the language of it that, that I think is very true within America, but I don't, I don't feel like these are two different, parts of my identities, or I feel like people have looked at them as if they are contradictory, when in fact, 
you know, for me also, like what it was to become more progressive in the Orthodox community was this deep desire to to do deeper study. I wanted to be more a part of the worship service. I, I wanted to more deeply engage in the community. But the irony of it was that the more deeply I engaged, if I was a man, that would have been fine. As a woman, the more deeply I engaged, the more liberal that inherently defined me to be. Um, and I feel like that's also true politically that, you know, I feel like all of these things are absolutely a core part of my religious identity. But because of the way that America has defined this political landscape, it means I'm, I'm a progressive politically, you know, even if I'm um, deeply religious, but I don't, I, I see those as, as so hand in hand. Yeah. It's, there's a former, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury named Rowan Williams, who's kind of one of the great theologians alive today. But Rowan Williams is always talking about how we've lost the capacity for nuance and it impoverishes our religious understandings and it impoverishes our politics. Because to be someone who is religiously traditionalist and that drives a, you know, what happens to be a constellation of policy objectives that happen to align with a more progressive party is something that like people just can't quite comprehend, but there's a spaciousness. I, when I said the word about intention, like to a degree you're saying you haven't intentionally chosen your place necessarily. It's, it's partly where, you know, we would use the language of, you know, calling um, in the Christian tradition a lot in the, but it, it's where you've been brought, but it, it seems to me like it also requires a degree of intention. So to, to do some intention questions, because it's you know one of the things we've talked about and I've talked about with Jewish friends uh, over the years, but to be a Jewish person, even living in University City uh, and to keep kosher requires a certain degree of intention. You were talking about like where you get your foods and making sure they're, um, but, and you've also talked about choosing where you live. Um, can you say something about like, what is the geography of your faith with University City and with Base Ave? Yeah, so um, so I live in University City. And um, so when I first moved to St. Louis, uh, I was working at Base Ave. I was actually living next door to Base Ave. That, that was part of the job. Um, and when I switched over, now I work with the Jewish Community Relations Council. And we were still committed to remaining members at Base Ave. And so that meant that we were only really willing to look for a house um, within walking distance. Uh, part of our um, Shabbat worship, our Sabbath experience, um, is that from sundown on Friday night until a little later sunset on Saturday, um, we won't drive, we don't um, utilize, we will leave electric lights on, we don't sit in the dark, but we will not change the status of electricity, so we won't turn things on or off, we won't use money or use cell phones or um, cook food. Um, we'll only eat food that has already been cooked and we might reheat it on a warming plate that's already left on. And so um, so we were only willing to really look, I think we're probably about a half a mile or so um, from Base Abe right now. And, and we could go further, but it's just a question of how far we're willing to walk in the cold. Um, you know, so when we go to Friday night services or Saturday morning services, um, less so right now with the pandemic, but um, we would walk in with our kids. So um, so that was something that was really important for us in terms of, of being close to the synagogue. 
There's also some regulations, depending on how in detail you want to go. Yeah. Um, there's there's a, a regulation we also will not carry on the Sabbath from what we would call a private space to a public space. Um, and in like true Jewish ingenuity, the rabbis will have their... Um, their, their kind of um, invention. So the rabbis invented this space that they said is not quite a public space or a private space if you create what they call an A-roof. So it's usually a string. It's sometimes invisible or it will utilize existing telephone wire or walls. So if you have an area that is all enclosed, then you can declare this is a semi-public, semi-private space. We all kind of agree as a community that we share some of this space, and then you can carry within that space. So there is an Eruv within University City. It, um, I think it goes to Skinker on one end, and I'm not sure how far it goes down west. Um, and so that was also important when we first moved. I had a, um, a child that was under one, and so being able to carry him or push him in a stroller meant that we had to live in an area that had this a roof so that we would be able to go out on shabbat morning and carry a bottle of wine to a friend's house if we wanted to join them for lunch yeah this is i remember learning about that but um the most concrete image i have of an a roof is one of the times i visited jerusalem i happened to be um down by the western wall and there are just like all of these lines that come together uh, to get to the wall. And it was, and somebody explained to me, it was because they go out to all of these different neighborhoods to bring the wall within the A-roof. Um, so I, my guess would be there are a couple of different definitions of A-roof for University City too, because out toward the west end of University City, you have several different shuls that may have slightly different interpretations of this space. Yeah, I mean, the community does it together. I think there's one, although I can, I can double check. I mean, that it becomes an interesting area where communities start to, to really work together because they realize it as a need. I'm from New York originally. In New York, you had tons of, of multiples and then who would who would actually trust this one or trust that one? Um, we're a much smaller community in University City. So I think it's all one, but um, it, it's certainly possible. Yeah. Um, so, oh, so what happens if the ARU breaks? Debbie yeah. Schuster wants to know. Yeah, I love this question. And I want to just say, by the way, this was a question on my ordination exam. So like, good job. Um, uh, the Jewish answer to everything is sort of, it depends. Well, so if the Eruv is broken, if the Eruv is down, um, so if we know before Shabbat, then uh, no one can carry on Shabbat. So there's actually an email that will go out to Jews who want to be on the listserv. I get an email every Friday afternoon that says the Eruv has been checked and it is it is up or it is kosher um, wow. and everything is good. Um, or you usually have to be really worried before a snowstorm or an ice storm um, that the Eruv might be down. I have a brother who lives in New York who's one of the Eruv checkers. He has one of those like cherry picker trucks. Like he gets to drive around and um, check it. So, um, so if it is down, like there have been weeks where it's down and we just, um, we, we prepare in advance not to carry anything. So depending on, you know, what our plans might have been, like you, you drop off that bottle of wine beforehand. Um, or if you have if you have a young child, then, you know, you might have to just choose to stay home. So it becomes really challenging. It, it's a much more complicated question if it breaks on Shabbat and um, you, you try not to carry anything you don't need to. And if you have like a child that you're stuck with, of course, you do whatever you need to do to get the child home. And we're not unreasonable with it. But but it does become really onerous if, if it does go down. Yeah, this was I. My one of my best friends when I was a little kid uh, was a. Uh, they they called themselves a one dishwasher kosher household. 
um, which is a distinction in the conservative community, but they, they kept kosher. Um, and uh, Mike, the dad was, had grown up more Orthodox in, in New York. And I remember really clearly we went canoeing in the Boundary Waters and Mike had a mosquito fly into his mouth. And my dad got all worried. He said, Mike, are mosquitoes kosher? And he swallowed and he said, they are now. <laughs> so I, there's a there's a degree to which um, interpretation is always a part of things, but there's a degree to which, you know, you got to like live life and, and get through life too. So um, thanks for spending some of the time talking about that. Um, I, I think too, like in the pandemic you mentioned, but it, it strikes me um, how much Judaism is a domestic uh, tradition, like how much of your faith practice is at home. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit and, and you know, like the relationship the Arub gives you between home and uh, the synagogue. But could you talk a little bit about like, what has it been like as a, a Jewish person, as a Jewish leader to navigate um, pandemic and how that's changed your practice of faith? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because so much of our faith community is is individual, but there also are communal elements to it. Um, so, I should say, I mean, I and and I I won't speak, um, I won't speak to the Anglican Church as a as a whole because I won't claim to know that much about it. I mean, I know like where, unlike you know my understanding of like in the Catholic church where you have sacraments, like certain things that ha that require a priest, there's very little, if anything in the Jewish community that requires um, somebody who's ordained, right? Traditionally kind of being ordained means somebody says, I, there, there's no kind of like infusion of, I don't know, power or holiness or sanctity that goes into a person, but it's more the recognition that this person has studied enough and has, um, enough. I mean, this is why like, that was the question I got asked. It was my ordination exam was sort of like a, what would you do in this situation? Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit more of like a, how do you think than a, what is the correct answer, right? Like, how would you work through this problem? So, um, so for me, like being ordained might mean that, that I'm recognized in the community as having thought more about these things and having been trained in them. But anyone in the community, I mean, you don't need a rabbi to be married. You don't need a rabbi to do a funeral or a baby naming. Um, you need to be married. You need a, a contract and two witnesses and there's a process. So oftentimes the rabbi knows what the process is, but you don't have to be. Other than like the state of Missouri might want a faith leader to, you know, sign the license. But um, so in that sense, like we don't need the, the community for any specific ritual items, but we need community the way that anybody needs community. You know, we all like to gather together. And there are certain prayers and certain rituals that we only can do in community. Um, and particularly, I think the most poignant is the Kaddish, which is a prayer that is traditionally said for the dead. It is said um, for a child who's lost a parent for 11 months after the parent dies. Anytime the community gathers together in, in um, prayer, there is Kaddish multiple times. Um, for other family members, it's said for 30 days, and it's often said. It's also said on the anniversary of when the person died, and it's an it's a fascinating prayer because it says nothing about death. It's all praise of God. Kaddish means holiness. It is sanctifying the name of God, but we do it as a way to sort of say like we want to sanctify the name of God. And we want the merit of this to go to the soul of the one who has passed. And um, we're doing it to elevate the soul of whoever has passed. 
And so that's been really painful for people not to be able to do that, both in terms of the practical elements of what is it to be able to honor those who have passed and, and that that's part of our mourning process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to be able to, to know that you can give back to, to somebody even in a way where, you know, there's nothing else you can do for this person or the way that we, we gather together to bury the dead, not because you need the whole community to do it, but because you need the whole support of the community in those moments. So, so we've really lost that. I mean, I think the way that all the communities have lost all of those um, elements to them. Um, so we, you can always pray individually. We do have individual prayer. But, you know, for me, a big part of, of Shabbat observance was I don't use my phone and I don't watch TV. And um, you gather together and we would spend Saturday morning in the synagogue and services would start at nine and go until 1130. And we wouldn't necessarily sit in services the whole time. They're going on. But you sit in services and then you leave and you chat with some friends and you walk around and you watch the kids play and you go back in and, you know, we, we don't kind of um, have a hard start and a hard stop. And, um, and that's how the day would pass, you know, then we'd all go to lunch. So, so those are all of the things that um, in some communities, there's been sort of creativity. This is where we get like rabbinic interpretation. Can you say Kaddish if there's um, a community of people on Zoom together? Um, you know, we're, we're having this conversation about um, the holiday of Purim is coming up when we read the scroll of Esther. Can you hear the scroll of Esther over Zoom? Does that count? Do you have to hear the person live? So we're getting new rabbinic interpretation. Um, but, you know, I think what we've lost is the same as what most communities have lost. And for the Orthodox community, because my Shabbat observance does not include electricity, I won't do services online. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll have like the rabbi at Beisei will send out a sermon before Shabbat starts, which I don't usually end up watching because that's not my time for a sermon. Like I'm busy preparing for Shabbat and doing all my cooking. And then on Shabbat morning, I'm not using electricity. And then when Shabbat's over, you know, I turn my TV back on. So I don't, you know, like we're, we're not kind of engaging. Um, so there are some congregations where they try to, to shift to the Zoom space and, and things like that. Um, but, but in the Orthodox community, we haven't been able to do that in the same way. Yeah, that's, I mean, starting by talking about the Kaddish, I remember I'd only ever gone to services with Jewish families before. Um, it was actually the the synagogue shooting in uh, Pennsylvania a couple of years ago. And I'd only ever gone before with good friends who like knew what time you actually were supposed to arrive. To, you know, like there was the publicized time and then when everybody actually got there. But so I came, I went to um, Colrena uh, to, you know, stand with my, uh, my, my you know, brother uh, Noah and Scott as they were facing that weekend. And I got there early and there were only like five or six people. And Noah, of course, I love the, Noah gets to like wander around in a way that a priest just never gets to wander around during a service. Um, but Noah came over and explained to me like, yeah, this is the part of the service. We're so glad you're here. Uh, you're obviously not a Jew because you showed up so early. Um, and But this is the part of the service that really is when uh, it's mostly the mourners who are here. Um, and the beginning of the service is really for those who are going through this ritual process of grief. Uh, and it was just this beautiful idea because I, I, there are a lot of people whose church attendance increases, um, and it, but it's not a part of our tradition to think about that, but whose church attendance increases around grief and around loss of a parent or a spouse or a loved one. And, and church has this new meaning for them. And I just thought it was so wonderful to have that intention. And that's 
that's a hard thing to lose in the midst of if you've got this wonderful developed prayer for grief and process for grief to lose that and in the midst of pandemic would be difficult uh, we have this is a i, I didn't we did, susan norris um is asking have you met much resistance to being female a female faith leader with your faith um, community or your family i I've met some, you know, it's, it's interesting because very rarely do people um, to my face say, no, you're wrong. Although certainly I've had some of those. My family has been really fascinating because um, when, so when, when the program was first announced, when uh, the rabbi whose name was Avi is Avi Weiss announced that he was going to ordain women. It was very controversial. Um, I lived in New York. There was a lot of Jewish papers. My parents got all the Jewish papers. And uh, and this was like the number one topic, you know, the way that he was destroying the Jewish community and things like that. And and my parents were pretty critical of it. And then at some point, um, I, I told them that I was going to do it. And it was interesting because they they knew Avi Weiss. He, he had been an activist in the 80s to support Soviet Jewry, Jews who were trying to get out of the former Soviet Union. And so he built a name for himself in that. So they liked him, but there was sort of this attitude of like, I don't like this, but it makes sense that you're doing it. You'll be good at it. You know? And so I was like, I mean, I feel like that's like, you're the, the exception to the rule for people. And, um, and, and I used to joke in the early years, I'd go and I'd speak and I'd say, we're not really as scary as everyone makes us out to be, you know, like everyone kind of looked like me. We just, we just wanted to study more. Like we weren't chaining ourselves to anything and we weren't rioting and we weren't, you know, like banging down the doors. We were like, please let us teach more spirituality to people. Like let us help people access, you know, God. Like it, it was so not, you know, it, like it was sort of a funny thing to to argue against. Um, and, but I, I was still, I didn't really talk about it a lot. I thought it was, you know, it was really controversial. I didn't want to deal with it. And my mom would, my mom would be like, I, I, I saw your high school teacher and I'd say, oh, how'd that go? And she'd say, oh, she'd say, what are you up to? And, and I was like, and did you tell her? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what did she say? And she said, well, she paused and she said, yeah, that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. and so it was kind of like the ways in which, um, you know, it would start to break down. Um, you know, now, like, I'm, I'm mostly in spaces where, you know, like, Face Abe is a really welcoming space. Um, I mean, people kind of choose, like, you don't have to invite me into your space. I'm not, I'm not banging down the doors of the other synagogues that don't want me in there. But I will say that there was this one time, I still think back to it, that I was, uh, I was giving the sermon on a Saturday morning. And um, when I got off the pulpit, I think it was after services, a man who was visiting that weekend, he came up to me and he said, I just, I just loved seeing you up there. Like it was just, it was so great to see you up there. And I said, Oh, you know, thank you very much. And he said, my friend, he came with me and he walked out as soon as you got up, he didn't even listen to you, but I listened. And it was just, it just, it filled my heart. I just loved seeing you up there to see women up there. And he was going on and on about it. And at some point I was like, you've not said anything about what I actually said. Like all he yeah. kept talking about was what it looked like. Like, and I, and I never said anything back to him, but I thought you've objectified me. Just, like your friends saw me get up there and left and you saw me get up there and you loved it. But neither one of you has actually responded to anything that I actually was preaching or doing. You're both just deciding that you like women or you don't like women on the pulpit, but none of you have actually, like, I want to actually, like, talk about the material. Tell me if you like my interpretation of text. Like, debate it with me. Um, and and so, you know, it's just a lot of ways that, you know, and I think this is true for a lot of women and a lot of people who who step into roles that are more unusual. Is, is it just, it's a lot of objectification. 
Yeah. No, I think that's that's very true. Um, and that's true. Um, my mom was in not the earliest, but one of the early generations of women clergy in the Episcopal Church. And we've had a number of women that have come through Holy Communion to be ordained. Um, really, in recent years, I'm super proud of them. They've, I mean, like we've got a number of women leading congregations in the St. Louis area that came through Holy Communion. But it, it does take a while. It takes a while for people to get less shocked and less, you know, like by the idea um, and able to actually just engage. But I, I was, it was, I was far enough in the question of women's ordination. I grew up in the parish that was sort of like the women's ordination parish in the Denver area. And so a whole bunch of women came through when I was a kid. I remember getting to Catholic college um, and there's not exact like corollaries, but you know, if conservative Judaism is the Episcopal church of Judaism, orthodoxy is a little bit more like Catholicism, but the way of doctrine and stuff functions is not at all the same. But um, right. I remember getting to Catholic college and having people ask me, like, do you believe in women's ordination? Do you believe in that? And I was like, believe it. I've seen it. Like <laughs> one of the first priests I had as a kid was a woman. Like it's not a controversy to me. Like I'm, yeah. So, it, but it takes, it's like generational. It takes time. Um, but yeah, it, 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 that's an interesting, like, how do you, how do you get, do you get, do people interact with the text and your interpretation of the text or are they just so stuck on, there's a woman on the pulpit? What do I do? Yeah. Right. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you can get them to that point. Um, but it's, I think a lot about the ways in which our interpretations and our access to the text is, is often controlled by who it's mediated through, right? Like, what does it mean that for thousands of years, our texts have been interpreted by a very particular group of people um, that have been granted access because if they broke out of that mold, they couldn't have access to it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think one of my favorite sermons that I ever gave was um, on, on Rosh Hashanah, on the, the Jewish New Year. And it's a day when we say that we're being, um, we celebrate the anniversary of when God created man and, and all people are being judged. And as part of our prayers, we, we say the phrase over and over again, Hayom Harat Olam, which gets translated in the book as today is the birthday of the world. But in fact, the phrase, after I did a little bit of research, the phrase actually comes from, um, I think it's in the book of Jeremiah. You can correct me because I think you do prophets more than we do. Um, but I think it's in Jeremiah when he's lamenting that he'd ever been born. And he says, right, like he wishes that he had... Um, that he, had, that, that he had never been born in the first place and he had just stayed in his mother's womb and his mother had remained pregnant forever. And so this like harat olam is actually like harat le olam, which in the Hebrew, it, it's, it's, an, it, it's like an eternal pregnancy. And it actually is the same phrase. And so it's like, today we are eternally pregnant. And I gave this sermon while pregnant with my youngest child. And it was like a whole different interpretation because who had ever, you know, like talked about, like who had gotten up to, who was pregnant, who was able to talk to it, you know, where, um, or, or in all of these, um, you know, I mean, and, and pick your identity, but, but whatever the identity was that, you know, um, and, and we can talk about it in, in the context of disability, we can talk about it in the context of LGBTQ, we can talk about it in the context of wealth, we can talk about, you know, um, all of these individuals who, you know, could not access the highest levels of, of academia weren't given, you know, you were, you were, um, what's the word, you know, but kind of sent off to the blacksmith or, or you know, apprenticed out or, or whatever you might have been doing. And, and we've actually lost, like we've lost all these interpretations of our texts because the people who just, 
you know, would have read it differently um, or who would have who would have understood it. I don't even mean read it right, but who would have had a profound understanding because they, you know, a friend of mine uh, is doing a weekly podcast on the Torah portion and she was just talking about how like how differently do we understand the book of Leviticus and all that we talk about, like now that we've actually lived through plague, like yeah. this idea of like the priests and this plague that can come upon your house, like it's a whole different interpretation because now we've actually done this. Um, and so, you know, we're going to interpret Bible differently than even a generation ago did. And, and so, you know, yeah, it, that's the beauty of it is like, when does somebody see it not as a hindrance, but to say, Oh, you actually have a perspective on the world and a perspective on the text that I can't access. And if we really want to get at God, if we really want to get at the sanctity of the text, then we need to bring us all together to say, you know, show me what I can't see in it. Yeah, no, I, for us, there's a, a number of women colleagues. I had not ever thought about it until I was in seminary. A number of women colleagues talked about the first time they preached in Advent, our season of like waiting for Christmas while they were pregnant and just how different of it. I mean, like you're talking about anticipating the birth of a child and there is your preacher anticipating the birth of a child and the like sort of, yeah, it's just a different access. I want to push you a little bit on this question of identity and feminism and knocking doors down. Because as much as you say that, I also know you've been active in um, movements around the uh, segregation of the wall in Jerusalem. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and like where your location has caused you in relationship to Israel in particular and the religious practice on the wall. Oh my gosh. It's a whole, you know, it's like fascinating when you suddenly have like religious observance actually codified into um, sort of government rule. So it would take too long to fully unpack how Israeli election systems work. Um, but if you're interested, you can watch it again. They're having their fifth election. I think they're up to now um, mm -hmm. that will be coming up, but, but basically, um, so they have a party system, a parliamentary system, and the the ultra orthodox parties will will always run, um, and they will usually align with whatever branch of government um, is able to take power on the condition that um, their children don't have to join the army. Uh, they have control over some aspect of education, and they have control over the religious sites. And typically, whoever is prime minister has to build a coalition. Like that's a free six vote. Sure, give them the religious sites that like they don't mm -hmm. care about anyway. And, you know, you're guaranteed there's six votes on defense, which they don't even want to talk about. So the ultra-Orthodox parties get control over all of the religious sites, which means all the religious sites in Israel. And when I say the religious sites, I mean the Western Wall, um, any tombs of um, uh, of ancestors or old rabbis. So uh, there's the tomb of the matriarchs and the patriarchs where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah are, are uh, said to be buried. The tomb where um, Rachel is said to be buried, the tomb of King David, the tomb of uh, the prophet Samuel. I mean, there, there's identified places. You can argue if they're accurate or not, right? A uh, long history. I'm sure the same is true in, in some of the church sites as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, um, but they all become Orthodox synagogues. And that means separate spaces for men and women. Uh, men have a separate entrance. Women have a separate entrance, which I was saying before, right? Like part of me would never really totally care about, but ultimately like the men's space is always larger than the women's space and what women are allowed to do in that space. So for a long time, it's not actually the case anymore. And it, it just, it's so illogical to me. 
so the Western Wall, it's this big outdoor plaza and there is a divider and there's a larger men's space and there's a smaller women's space, but anyone can go up to the wall and pray. Um, but there was a law, there was actually a law that said that women could not wear um, certain ritual items that men would typically wear. So the talit, the prayer shawl, um, that is fairly common now for women in conservative and reformed Judaism, but in the Orthodox community, women tend not to wear. Um, the the tefillin, which gets translated as phylacteries, but I don't think that means anything to people in English. Um, it, it's a box that has a scroll inside that has uh, some of the passages. Um, when it says, uh, bind these to your head and to your arm, we take that literally. We put those verses and people will bind them and they'll wrap them with it. Um, and they can't read from a Torah scroll. Mm. And so it for about 30 years now, I think there's been a group of women that has gone on Rosh Chodesh, which is the first of the month when we do a Torah reading and we do extra prayers that will go to the wall and they will show up in their prayer shawls and in their tefillin and with a Torah and they will, uh, and they've gotten arrested for it. Um, wow. And, um, and now it's no longer illegal to wear the talit and the tefillin, but um, it is illegal for them to pray with a Torah scroll. And so, um, so I've gone a couple of times when I've been in Jerusalem for Rosh Chodesh, we've gone and it, I mean, it's, it's astounding because it's similar to what I said before, right? Here's these women who just, they want to pray to God in the way that they, they're not even doing like an egalitarian mixed service. It is an exclusively women's service where women want to pray. And, um, and there will be people around them jeering. The police have to come and set up barriers to stop people from throwing things. Um, other women will come with whistles to, to drown out the singing of the women that are there. So you can't hear them. They'll jeer at them. They'll yell at them. At us, I mean, when I've been part of it, like it's it's a st- there's been schools that have bussed their young girls in to um to to you know is is my I just saw somebody said that it's cutting out. I Are think you it may be on their end. Okay, I just wanted to check if my so um so I, I mean it it is like it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and I will say actually, the last time that I went, I actually was with a group of uh, of some of our colleagues, including Christian colleagues. Um. Who, who had been active um, in some of the Ferguson protests, we decided to do a trip together to Israel and Palestine to really, you know, delve into the complexities of the situation and, and some of the discussions that were happening around Ferguson and Palestine. And so we decided to go. And, um, and that day they had snuck in a Torah. Um, some, apparently what they did was that somebody had this little Torah scroll. They brought it in a bag. They went like four days earlier because they know to search the bags for Torahs. Um, so somebody went like four days earlier and they had shifts. So somebody for 24 hour, you know, like overnight, so you couldn't leave the Torah alone. Um, and so they had shifts of somebody always staying with the bag, even if somebody else would leave, somebody else would come in. Um, and they, they did this prayer service. And, um, and so in the middle, all of a sudden, you know, and these women are there, but they, not everyone knew if they would have a Torah or not. And, uh, and then suddenly someone kind of pulls out the Torah and you see the police like kind of start to like converge. And it was amazing because I was with these Christian colleagues who were not at all following this service, but, but they like, they just, they feel the fervor of this woman and they see the police start coming and they just link arms. They were like, this is what, I don't know what's happening, but I know I link arms, you know? And, and like, you know, it's like Deb Krause just like grabs me, you know? And she's just like, all I know is I hold on tight. And, um, and they did. And the police did not take away the Torah in that case. They, they, you know, just decided it was not worth the photo op of, you know, taking away this, the scroll. But I mean, this is, I feel like such, so emblematic of, of my, advocacy work in some ways is like for me like some of it feels so absurd like 
women want to fully participate in religious tradition like that you know it's not even like I, I like I don't feel like I'm I guess it is it's breaking with generations of tradition but but in the most beautiful of ways right it, it's not like these people are trying to undermine the tradition we're trying to more deeply access the tradition but it's within a structure in which um oftentimes the people who are in power the men who are in power in this case um, are scared of, of what that means to to allow others to um, to own their role in the faith communities. Or, you know, I mean, with power and with authority, people worry that sharing it means less of it for themselves. Or I, I don't even know that I can fully interpret it. But it is it is just it is horrifying in in actually watching it, but also beautiful in seeing these women who are just willing every month, despite all of the indignities that they have to suffer, to just say, we are gonna go to this wall and we are gonna pray to God just like our ancestors have wanted to for thousands of years. Yeah, I I love that image. I mean, the image of people who had stood together in Ferguson standing together with their arms linked at the wall, is just like tear jerking a little bit. It's it's this like full circle of of what that means, but, it gets us into like the big, there are questions. I mean, it's wonderful to have colleagues uh, across a religious divide, but the, the religious divide that divides us is one that has been historically difficult um, and, and more than difficult, painful, abusive, terrible, um, and and fraught. Um, and I wonder, we when we were preparing for this, we talked a little bit about and I wanted to ask you about the, you told me a great story about a rabbi going to church, but we're coming toward um, Lent in the Episcopal Church, which culminates in Holy Week. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, like there is a Jewish awareness of Christian liturgical cycles and what can happen during Holy Week. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is and, and, and the history about that. And the Jewish community is incredibly aware of the fact that historically, the earliest Christians were Jews, um, and and the process of our community separating was not a simple or painless process. Um, I mean, certainly, I think the earliest Christians. You know, we could talk about persecution of the earliest Christians, but in the realm of history, it's a at the risk of being flippant, it's a minor part of, uh, um, you know, of overall history of, of the Christian community. And, and the Christian community, I think, in really needing to find itself as separate from Jews, um, you know, really, really took some hard lines in terms of how the ways in which the Jewish community was wrong, um, the ways in which the Jewish community is ultimately replaced by the Christian community, what we would call supersessionist yeah. theology, um, uh, Christianity being the new chosen people, the new Israel. Um, and, and, and those who felt the need to advocate for their definition of, um, of God, of Messiah, of Jesus, whatever it might be through, through the sword, um, you know, and that has included historically, um, Jews not being allowed to worship our books being burned, um, our books being censored, uh, forced disputations, which were public debates in which rabbis were forced to debate, debate against priests and invariably, usually the rabbis lost no matter what it was that happened. Um, uh, or the disputations where the fear was that if the rabbi did not do exactly as needed to be, the people would get kicked out. Um, I mean, up until America, we've been kicked out of just about every diaspora community in which we've ever lived. 
And so, um, and, and I mean, that particularly really comes to a head around um, Lent and Easter, you know, particularly with the accusation of Jews being responsible for um, the murder, uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ, um, Jews being um, accused of deicide, and, um, and Jews therefore being worthy of punishment because of um, the crimes that have taken place. And so, you know, while we're not quite as, as worried today, you know, there used to be, and much more kind of in Europe, um, although not that long ago, um, uh, worries about things like blood libels. Uh, Easter often coincides with Passover. There's been this story that um, on Passover we eat matzah, this, this flat kind of not even wafer, like, you know, broken, uh, easily to break, um, brittle bread. And um, uh, that, that, that blood of Christian children is used. Um, and so therefore, you know, uh, Jews have to be attacked for killing Christian children. Um, if, if ever a child would disappear, Jews would often be accused of, of that or be scapegoated in some ways. I mean, while we're not really worried as much about things like blood libels, and today we are still very aware of the ways in which language that gets used in the Christian community can still um, provoke a subtle anti-Semitism that people might not even be aware of. So I remember, um, at the risk of, of dating myself, I was in college when The Passion of the Christ came out. Mm. And I remember going with a friend because it was, you know, all the talk about, you know, whether or not this was an anti-Semitic movement uh, movie. And, uh, and I remember I saw it with a friend of mine who was Catholic, and we watched this movie. And at the end of the movie, he said to me, he said, well, it's not the Jews who killed Jesus, it's the Pharisees who killed Jesus. And I looked at him and I said, who do you think that we think we are? Like, like, we, you know, and, and I, I'd actually like had I've had that conversation with with pastors also where they've said, no, you know, I say, like, who do you blame? And they said, well, it's the Pharisees. And I say, we see the Pharisees, for us, the Pharisees were the rabbis, the rabbinic tradition that we ultimately inherit. Like, I am a direct descendant of the Pharisees, and we don't see that as a negative light at all. And so when when you have Christians who say, no, we're not accusing the Jews, we're accusing the Pharisees. You have Jews who very proudly are from of the Pharisaic tradition, um, yeah. you know, or the ways in which, um, you know, people are just kind of not mindful of, you know, so they'll talk about the Jews in the story and they may or may not think about them in the modern context of Jews, but then you actually encounter real Jews in the real world today. And what's the association? So the story that I had shared was a, a colleague of mine who's a rabbi who does interfaith work would say that on Easter Sunday, he would go to a church and he would he would just sit and listen to the sermon. And afterwards, maybe a week later, he would call, I think it was usually a, a Catholic church. So he'd call the priest and he would say, my name is Rabbi so-and-so and I, I am the director of interreligious affairs at this uh, American Jewish committee. It was, and he said, and I was in your, uh, I was in your church for Easter Sunday. He said, maybe he'd even do it face to face. He'd ask them for coffee. And he said they would always kind of go white as they'd be like, what did I say? Like, did I, what did I talk about? And, and he would tell, and he would say to them sometimes, he'd say, you know, sometimes he'd say, you were fine. You know, or sometimes he'd say, listen, here were some things that were really offensive. But at the end he would say, look, assume I'm always in the pews when you speak. Like every Easter, I could be there. You know, and, and this idea of like, do you speak differently if there's actually a Jew that's in front of you? And if so... Should you be saying that in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, you know, because we don't, we're not worried about, you know, the Episcopal Church kind of, you know, going out and starting a, a riot and, and um, you know, throwing rocks through synagogue windows or things like that. But historically, these same teachings have been used to do that. And and it's the same way I think we talk about all of our unconscious bias, right? Like it is, it is, in, it is within us and the ways in which we need to name 
very carefully who are the people that we are talking about and are we talking about this ancient group or this modern group and even in the context of the ancient group right like you know was it was it the jews who are responsible in this context is it the romans who are responsible what's the theology that emerges and and what does that allow for into today yeah no i mean that those particular examples i think are really helpful because it you know, I, I heard Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a very famous Episcopal priest, talk about how for years she would preach against like Pharisaic attitudes, which the New Testament, if you don't have context, if you don't like that makes sense like these. And but she's since disowned that language, learned not to use it that way. And even Pete Buttigieg, who's an Episcopalian, maybe the most visible political Episcopalian in recent times, got in trouble for um, Pharisaic, I think was the exact thing that right. he and, and he was open. I mean, what was beautiful about that, though, was that he was open to, I think, hearing when people said, we actually take that really personally, because he was actually trying to say, not these modern Jews, you know, I'm talking about these old Pharisees. And we don't actually like we see ourselves. We would not, I would never call myself Pharisaic, but I'm I am of the Pharisaic tradition. Yeah, well, and, and it's a beautiful I mean, like, part of what you were saying earlier in terms of um, so much of Judaism that is alive today is a domestic religion. You don't need a, a priest to do specific things. It's because uh, the Jewish people had to reinterpret religion after the great catastrophe that happened when the Romans tore the temple down. Um, and it's the Pharisaic and rabbinic tradition that carries forward and sort of creates modern Judaism, correct? Absolutely, which is which is why we so embrace that identity, and we see that um, you know as such an important part of, of who we are, because because they're the ones who ultimately win out. I mean, the the debate that's happening that that you see in the New Testament is a debate that also is in the history of Judaism, as we're trying to to grapple with like what. Sorry if you're hearing yelling. Uh, it's okay, I got it. Um, so you know we're we're kind of grappling with like what what do all these traditions mean? What are we actually supposed to be doing? And you know, I mean, when I think about like the Bible as a book and particularly the the first five books of the bible like it's all about getting to the land of israel and then it's all about the the books of prophets are about not getting kicked out of the land of israel and how do we get towards you know the temple and worship of god um, and then how do you not lose the temple and lose worship of god and and then we do and but our whole tradition was really about here's here's how you bring sacrifices here's how you worship god in the temple um, it's part of why I love the the rabbinic study and this idea of like how we reinterpret texts is because it's how we've managed to stay alive. Mm -hmm. um, because we've we've been able to say um, it's not about sacrifice; it's about study. Um, that study has replaced sacrifice. That prayer can replace ritual. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's all the Pharisaic tradition. That's all the rabbis who who really, um, you know, figured out what it was. And and so now suddenly you know we can be a Jewish community in America with access to Jerusalem, but no temple still built and have this flourishing Judaism because of debates that the rabbis had 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I do. There's, there's two places I want to get before and we just have a couple of minutes left. So um, I, I, I love that, that interpretation and the, the, that sense of, you know, what is the role of religion? And, and when a religion has had to essentially reinvent itself as a textual tradition, um, I, I always come back to Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Lord Rabbi, the chief rabbi in Britain. I heard him once say, uh, Jewish festivals can mostly be distilled down to, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. Yeah. <laughs> but how, I mean, even getting there takes a pretty significant uh, like drash, like, like interpretation of the text and interpretation of history. 
Um, I wonder about, there, there's two places I want to go. We, we had a question earlier about um, what are some of the opportunities for joint social justice work between our communities? I, I'd love to hear your, I mean, you've got a much more St. Louis wide vi version of that, vision of that than I do. So I'd love to hear your response to that question. I think there's so many opportunities. I mean, first of all, anything that needs to happen, it becomes an opportunity. Um, our Jewish community is, is deeply engaged in work of um, anti-racism, um, work in particular, uh, pro-immigration work, as I've referenced earlier, uh, and particularly we're very excited that um, the new administration has said that they are going to uh, increase the cap of refugees that can come in because we were seeing practically nothing in St. Louis in recent years. Um, we, we do advocacy in Jefferson City, education about um, gun violence, environmental racism, environmental injustice. I mean, for the Jewish community, like we recognize that um, there's very little we can do just for the Jewish community. We're invested in the region at large. And if our region is suffering, then we are suffering. So um, so we're, we're invested in partnerships in any and all of that work. And I will say that, you know, on the one hand, like there's some things that are, it's kind of fun to like be the Jews who do this. But I will also say like having spent time in places like Jefferson City, uh, more people are Christians than Jews. Jewish there. And so, you know, I think, I think Mike can get further with a, with a collar and a maleness, you know, and a whiteness than, uh, than I might with a female and a headscarf. But, um, you I know, so, so <laughs> just, just, just the, just the look, just the look. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, I mean, I, I think there, like, I think there is what to be done. And I, I also think that there's ways in which, um, there's ways in which like, we just need more people power of like getting our hands dirty and, and doing some of this work. Um, there's programs that we can't run as a small community that we can run as larger communities that we can do more together. But there's also advocacy work that my experience has been, you know, like I've gone to elected officials as the Jewish community where people are kind of like, okay, great. And then we show up and we say, this isn't the Jewish community. Like this is the Jewish community with the Catholics and the Baptists and the Episcopals and the Muslims and the Buddhists. And like, we are all here to tell you you can't separate children from their families when they cross the border as yeah. one example of like when we went to Roy Blunt's office, you know, like, and, and, and that actually does get people to sit up straighter because it's not one group. It's if you can form a coalition that surprises people, they have to sit up a little bit straighter. So um, I, I think that there's, there's tons of work that we're doing that we're happy to just tell you more about through JCRC, but there's tons of opportunities that are just like, when we open that up, we can, you know, anytime people are like, really, you guys are working together? We're like, yes, because yeah. it's that important. Yeah, and I think that that, um, we're not gonna get into a lot. I mean, we could we could do a whole other one on US, um, Israel, Palestine, Christian, I mean, you and I could talk about that oh, for yeah. 45 minutes. But I think in, in those questions where, um, I loved your image about like, what is the, what is the ethical way to engage in a another country that has religious claims that both of us resonate with and has a particular history? I mean, the history of Anglicanism and Judaism basically is what gives us the modern state of Israel. But there are so many opportunities for us to stand together. And I will say, I love going into those kind of meetings with Rory because when I'm standing there with my collar behind Rory, they get even more nervous. Uh, I think when they see the two of us together. Um, I did some testimony this week about a particular gun violence or a particular firearms and they're calling it firearms in churches, but uh, it's all, it, all houses of worship. 
um, that if they pass it and through the committee, if it comes up, I am sure that Rory and I and other religious leaders will be working to, uh, like we did three years ago, try to stop. Um, and I'm frankly, I love it when they try to poke the bear like that, because that's one that uh, you can get religious leaders together across lots of different divisions. And if you start asking us about whether we want firearms in our houses of worship, we might also tell you where we don't want firearms beyond our houses of worship too. So right. I think- I mean, and the other one and I called you about last year and it's gonna be coming up again is also there's like a lot of anti-trans bills that are coming yeah. up um, and those get complicated because not all our faith traditions will speak out on those. Um, but, but all the more so when you do have faith leaders that are willing or people of faith that are willing to say, no, as a person of faith, this isn't where I want this to go. Um, and, and that's where like, I've been part of coalitions where they put me in front of the people of faith because I, I can speak a different language with them. And it's like, no, like we want to talk Bible verses. Like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> like we can, like, we'll do it. Yeah, no, that's, I, I've loved walking around. I've been doing some organizing in black church communities and it amazes me how often people ask, do you know, Rory, you two are working on some similar things. And I'm I like, I love that that is your reputation in town. Debbie Schuster, who um, asked a question a little bit earlier. Uh, Debbie, I see what you're saying about Mitzvah Garden. Actually, our um, garden at Holy Communion, we received all of our training and we do all of our work already through CRC. Like their Mitzvah Garden is the, is the parent of our garden in a lot of ways. And so that's a great idea for collaboration. And we're really grateful to Lori Anzalotti and several of the people who helped make that happen in the first place. Um, but Rory, let me finish by saying like, just how much I love having you as a colleague and thank you for taking a chance with me and doing this this way the first time. Um, I wanna put the questions out here in the chat for folks. We did ask folks, we invited folks um, to set up a time. Uh, and if you don't wanna do it right now live, you can, this will be archived on our site, um, but set up a time. The questions are um, there spread across the chat. Uh, they're also at pubtheologystl.org. But we'd love for you to talk about this conversation, um, talk about uh, some of what Rory and I talked about, locate your own self uh, in your own religious context and talk about why you choose to be there. Um, I'm really grateful for a colleague who is so, it's somewhat accidentally, and, and I would say now with a great deal of intention, inhabits your particular place in the religious sphere. In two weeks, uh, we're gonna be back. Um, we're gonna do this uh, twice a month. So in two weeks, um, I will be back on. And uh, the guy who's actually right above me, he's in our background, but uh, the Reverend Dr. Ben Sanders is gonna be with me. Technically, that's not an interfaith conversation. That's an ecumenical conversation. But um, talking with Ben about uh, what it means to be a scholar and an ethicist in the black church and his choice about where he locates himself uh, in wider questions of religion. So join us again in two weeks. And Rory, thank you. Thanks for taking the time with me today. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk to you. And thank all of you for engaging with us. Hope to see you soon.